So good afternoon. My name is Rosella. I'm the CIPZ Chair uh, for YEPG, the Young Energy Performance Group. And today I'm here with James Quiggin uh, that will respond to some questions um, addressed by the graduate engineers. Lots of graduates uh, don't have the opportunity to attend to design meetings, design team meetings, and are not involved in the decision process that leads to defining the energy strategy. So today we're going to focus on these two main points, hoping to shed some light on them. So J James, uh, welcome to the YPG podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rosella. Uh, so first of all, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I'm James Quiggin. Uh, I'm a technical director at a multidisciplinary practice called Scotch Partners. Um, we uh, I've been a, a, a mechanically biased building services engineer for about 12 years now. Uh, I am a, I'm a chartered engineer with SIBC uh, and I hold a few other SIBC uh, certifications as well, such as the uh, Low Carbon Consultant, ESOS Lead Assessor and Heat Networks Consultant. Um, so um, we're going to start our discussion, first of all, from describing how the design team is composed. Can you please clarify briefly uh, who is usually involved? Um, okay, so so obviously, first of all, in, in the middle of everything, there's got to be a client. So somebody somebody has to want something to be done. So 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 first, first that's 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 the center of any design team. Um, probably after that, the, the next the next person to get involved is usually either a project manager or an architect, and usually this person becomes the kind of um, central point of the design team and, and all of the other members um, kind of expand expand out from them. Um, so probably the what, what you might call the core design team of, of like the smallest and simplest projects uh, would probably be um, someone, a project manager. Now that might be an external consultant or that might be somebody uh, directly employed by the client. Um, but someone in, in charge of managing the project. Um, there will always almost always be an architect, um, structural engineer. Generally, uh, there'll be a, um, a quantity surveyor um, looking after costs and there'll be us an MEP practice. And that's kind of the kind of core, um, the core team, really. Um, who else sort of then depends on a project by project basis and, and some some project teams are truly uh, enormous. Um, I guess the biggest teams that I've worked with tend to be for um, new build developments in London, um, particularly at the pre-planning stage where, where more people tend to be involved. So actually um, when I was preparing for this earlier, I, I wrote a list this morning of um, of all of the people involved uh, in a project I'm currently working on. Uh, do you want me to read them all out? Go. Okay, right. I'll try to be quick. Okay, so <laughs> so we have we have a client, a concept architect, an executive architect, structural and civil engineer, MEP consultants, sustainability consultants, energy consultants, acoustician, project manager, quantity surveyor, urban designer, planning consultant, fire engineer, facade consultant, transport consultant, landscape architect. Air quality assessor, ecology consultant, security consultant, lighting designer, lift consultant, party wall surveyor, approved inspector, CDM advisor, facade access consultant, heritage advisor, flood risk assessor, 
wing consultant, archaeology consultant, accessibility consultant, arboricultural consultant, CGI visualizer, right of light and daylight sunlight consultant, uh, public comms and a design out crime consultant. So that came to just over 30 uh, in total. And I bet you there's probably a couple I missed because there'll be people working on these jobs that I never, never get to speak to throughout the whole course of the job just because our scope and their scope are just so separate from from each other but yeah there's there can be a lot of people and probably uh among the ones so you said you're not going to talk to all of these but probably you are going to talk to additional ones the specialist ones so tv specialists film specialists <laughs> yeah of course yeah 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 so they're you know they they're other people that kind of then sit almost inside other consultants yes it's absolutely so you have mentioned there is always a client. Everything starts with a client. So can we de define who is a client a little bit more? Um, well, sort of from from our perspective as a, as a practice, and the same goes for any practice, our client, their client is whoever is paying them. Um, so that's not necessarily the person, the ultimate client uh, who who is commissioning the project and, and um, is is ultimately paying for everything um you know uh, your our client is is not always that person um the ultimate client is is often uh someone like a landlord or it could be a tenant of a space wanting to fit a space out could be a property developer uh could be a local council or government department um it could be a pension fund we're currently working on uh, a job for the for the church commissioners of England. So, so the ultimate client can be um, can be many many people. Um, our our client as a as a consultant is is not always the the ultimate client. Um, we might be employed uh, as a sub consultant to the architect, so taking our instruction from them and and being paid by them. Uh, we we might. In other circumstances, we might be employed by the uh, by the main contractor, um, particularly on a, a on a design and build contract. So, in, in those circumstances, uh, they would be our direct client. Okay. Uh, the, so, yeah. Okay. So, I was just I was just going to say, obviously, uh, the the ultimate client has is responsible for kind of briefing the whole project, but obviously, who our client is can, can influence our our brief somewhat so um you know if we are employed by say a contractor on a, a dmb contract to to deliver for them a complicated design um with you know a fixed budget and a fixed time scale perhaps their brief to us is would be to to come up with the quickest and cheapest solution which might be slightly different to actually what the ultimate client um you know their values and their priorities may be different i that's a fairly cheap shot but that's um it's just kind of to illustrate the point i guess that that uh you know who you're employed by kind of has a bearing on 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 your what your brief and your remit is okay so we're going to touch base on this uh in a minute uh, but why, uh, can you explain a little bit more, why are there so many professionals involved? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, people are going to make money, right? Um, <laughs> I think, um, as I say, a, a lot of that list that I read out earlier 
particularly. Um, so a lot of consultants um, are kind of driven by requirements of the planning process. So, so I, I'd say of, of that list that I read out earlier, probably half of them will will complete their work or or complete the the vast majority of their work by the time the project uh, is submitted for planning and receives ultimately receives planning permission. Um, so, so you know the biggest project teams, as I said before, tend to be um, tend to be associated with big contentious. Um, major major developments in in places like London where the planning requirements are very stringent um, otherwise it, it often kind of comes down to the complexity of a project so um, you know in in our practice we offer um, say lighting design and lift consultancy as, as part of our core offering um, but we don't have people who in our practice who only do lighting design and lift consultancy so a client may go out to a specialist who employs people that, that do that and only that all day every day uh, if they see that those specialists can, can can provide it you know extra value on their on their scheme so um yeah i think it, it depends but the planning's the big one um planning is as i say half of those guys will will, will disappear once that gets submitted okay uh, so who decides who to hire? Is it just down to the client and when uh, this decision making process happens? Or is it perhaps the um, project manager that suggests to hire somebody? I think that a lot of that depends on, on who the client is. So, you know, some, some clients, so if we're working for a developer, a developer understands, you know, that it's their business to understand what they need uh, and they will only employ the people they need. Uh, we obviously work with lots of lay clients as well who who want to build something but have never built something before. So so in those in those situations, they're kind of heavily reliant on the advice of the professional team. And as I say, usually, particularly a lay client like that, the first person they would would bring on board is likely to be uh, a project manager or an architect and then that project manager and architect is going to kind of advise them and start bringing in more more consultants and then and then when those consultants come in they might suggest other people to come in with them so it kind of you know sometimes it kind of grows organically like that but does it always all, uh, happen organically or for example uh, what we see sometimes is that the building services engineers are brought into the team quite late and perhaps too late. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, again, that, that all depends on so, someone. Someone makes a decision there, right? So, so if it, you know, a lay a lay client might not even know they need a building services engineer. You know, someone that's never built a building before uh, is, is relying on someone telling them that they need that. Um, yeah, you know, some sometimes, you know, particularly domestic clients. You know, we if you work with a domestic architect, they will often have some rudimentary understanding of building services and probably have a crack at it. Um, you know, but I guess I wouldn't necessarily say I, I recommend that as an approach. But um, but but it's just, I guess it's the same as what we were saying about um, specialisms. You know, if you know a little bit, mate, sometimes that's uh, sometimes that's enough. Um, what does the client usually care most about? Is it Cost or energy efficiency, or both, or neither? <laughs> uh, 
Well, I mean, you know, that clearly that 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 varies significantly from from client to client. Um, and sort of as a result, one of the most important things that we have to do at the outset of any project is is understand what the client wants, what their brief is, what their aims and objectives for the project are, um, so that so that our all of our work from that point can can be focused on responding to that and and, and achieving those objectives. I mean, obviously, cost is always a factor. I, we I can't think of a time in my career where I've worked with a client where money was truly no object. You know, everyone has a has, has a limit as to how much they're willing to pay. So cost is always a, a factor. Um, yeah, energy efficiency is is it depends. You know, some um, for 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 some clients it's it's extremely important to them. Uh, for other clients, less so. You know, um, the I'd say it's very rare for clients to truly not care at all about energy efficiency. Um, but um, you know, some just just don't really understand it. So you know, it's we we occasionally have to and really it's our responsibility to kind of educate um clients to, to an extent and kind of help them bring them along the journey and help them understand the benefits of um energy efficiency measures um you know as many things can be done with without kind of introducing significant cost premium um and and they have you know real tangible benefits that a client can understand you know not just reducing co2 which is a bit of a uh you know it's an abstract concept but but saving saving operational uh, energy costs um you know in, improving the saleability or the letability of their space because their tenants might care about energy efficiency um you know improving thermal comfort there's lots of things um other benefits to kind of help people uh, get on board yeah, so uh, it probably depends on if the client is going to just resell the building or if it's going to maintain it and manage it. Totally, totally. So who drives uh, in the team as there are so many consultants? Who drives uh, the project towards the energy efficiency and at what point? Again, I, I would say that depends. I would say most, most often uh, we are you know the MEP engineer is 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 at the center of it um and and certainly if a client has no particular briefing objectives related to energy efficiency then then it's our you know we we typically are uh the only people pushing pushing that agenda uh you know that's unfair that's not necessarily always fair you know there are plenty of architects structural engineers out there doing cool stuff uh and who, who are kind of um you know, to totally on board. But I would say, you know, more often than not, uh, you know, MEP engineers, we specify uh, all of the primary kind of energy consuming equipment within the building. So, you know, it's, it's kind of under our control and under our remit. Um, and so, yeah, as, as a result, energy and MEP is kind of fundamentally intertwined. Um, and further to that, we often, you know, we, we are often then relied upon to um, give advice on on things that aren't kind of core MEP disciplines like, uh, you know, building fabric thermal performance, even optimization of massing and shading, giving advice to architects about what shape the building should be to, to operate officially, uh, efficiently, um, performance of glazing. Um, I guess um, 
it's not always us though so so sometimes the client um is um uh has you know particularly uh, big corporations or like institutional clients like universities like a couple we work with they have their own very stringent internal standards um that that they have that, that that they push and roll out on all their projects so um sometimes it comes from the very top um and obviously that the ultimately the minimum baseline is is always set by by building regulations by the um any energy requirements of the local authority if the build uh, build going through a planning process so um yeah there are lots of lots of factors but we're we we tend to be in the middle of it all so can you explain a little bit more uh, how uh, the process that leads to the energy strategy works so obviously we start at pre-planning but then what happens up to planning and then post planning what can be changed and what cannot be changed well that's a good question so so um so so you know pre pre planning and in, in, in up up to planning you start i guess with a blank piece of paper in, in many cases or or perhaps you're starting with an existing structure that you're um that you're, you're renovating so um you know that the period between the conception of the project and and the planning application you know again varies from project to project but often there's there's you start really with um with kind of optimizing um passive design measures so looking at um building fabric massing um kind of fenestration and glazing percentages shading all of those sorts of things um then you start looking at active active energy efficiency measures so the specification of plant lighting um different systems and strategies that you can use um obviously there's a requirement to um consider and assess any um renewable energy technologies that are likely to be appropriate um for the, for the building so that's a key a key part of that pre-planning stage as well uh, and then ultimately you kind of get, you know, you get to the end, you have an energy strategy, which is a, a you know, a mixed bag of all of these things all, all kind of mixed up together. Uh, hopefully you've, you've come up with the, uh, you know, by, by that point you've, you've had time to come up with the best combination of measures for the building, which, which, which um, fulfills the kind of client's briefing expectations whilst also, um, complying with the 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 minimum standards and, and hopefully exceeding the minimum standards of the local authority uh kind of post planning obviously um you are obliged to uh to 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 enact you know to, to build your building in 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 accordance with the consented documents so there's always some flexibility you know reports are buildings are not completely fixed at, at planning stage you know particularly inside there are things um you know not all of the systems have been fully designed so there's always scope for some change and, and, and development but um you know fundamentally the core principles and strategies that you um that you commit to delivering uh, at planning stage you know the, the expectation i think of the local authorities that that will be delivered uh, you know unless you agree um an, an alternative so if, for example, uh, at pre-planning, um, the consultant responsible for the energy strategy specifies 
as it's happening more and more now, uh, a certain uh, COP uh, coefficients or uh, efficiency. Uh, and then post-planning, there is a, a VE option or a technical submitter from the contractor saying, I want to use this unit instead of the other unit. It, it gets a little bit tricky there, no? It, yeah, it does. I mean, I, I must I must admit I I couldn't tell you uh, I couldn't tell you how it's you know precisely what the limitations are set out in law and I wouldn't even like to say that anyone's ever tested it. Uh, I mean the fact of the matter is uh, a lot of the time no one's checking. You know something like something like the energy strategy. Um, no one no one is signing off. Uh, approving an energy strategy and, and and giving planning consent to the building, and then later coming back and checking which model of the VRF heat pumps have been put in, uh, and it and and whether those models are as efficient as the ones that that are specified. So so I think there's you know there's an element of of trust. I think with all these things, I think there's as I say, there's always um, scope for design development and I think that's that's kind of understood but I think if you're talking about a sort of fundamental change to the to the um, energy efficiency whether anyone will catch you I wouldn't like to say but you know I think you're 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 treading on thin ice there certainly okay so um, the last question I have is um, about the cooperation, the collaboration among all the various consultants. So uh, it's, it can become tricky at times to define the responsibilities of each consultant up to which point they are. So can you just elaborate about this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. It's, it is um, it is often tricky. And, and to be honest with you, I, I've not, I don't think I've ever met anyone that's really truly cracked it as as to how to make that that seamless because as you say a lot of a lot of the time consultants have uh, overlapping responsibilities um and and having kind of clearly defining the um clearly defining the this the where one one person's responsibility begins and another responsibility ends uh on some projects there is no attempt to do that and it's all relies on everyone kind of being friendly and amenable with each other um as you know often often when when bidding for a project you're not provided with a detailed scope of services so so each consultant writes their own scope and and ultimately hopefully it all adds up to a complete project at the end um obviously um there are ways and means so particularly contractors i think are quite good at this because i guess for them it's in you know they they it's very very important to them that all bases are covered so that particularly main contractors on a dmb contract that don't actually want to take any responsibility themselves they've got to make sure that all of the responsibility is nicely distributed out amongst the team so you know it's it's usually long tedious responsibility matrices um but a lot a lot of it comes down really to um to communication and and agreements and and you know it's not uncommon i think to find in projects that there is either a scope overlap and then you kind of agree who takes it on 
you know, kind of amicably uh, or, or, or often scope gaps as well, where actually, you know, get, take an example, let's say that, that both, you know, neither the MEP engineer nor the civil engineer has included for designing the below ground drainage, you know, and then if, if that if that comes to light, then, um, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's a conversation to be had and it ends up being added into someone's scope. So I think there's there are, as I say, there are methods and a responsibility matrix. Uh, it, it tends to be the, the, the best way that I've seen, but um, it's difficult to capture every eventuality, especially when you have in excess of 30 different businesses uh, working on the, on the on the project. You know, it just it relies on people being human beings at the end of the day and, and, and being kind of amicable and helpful to one another. Yeah, I think that's the key uh, for a, a success, a successful uh, project, the collaboration and the kindness among each other. Uh, absolutely, because you can get a lot more done when, when people help each other and go above and beyond the minimum that they could do um, you know, it, ultimately, that's the difference, I think, between um, the most successful projects and just a, a typical project. You know, the most successful projects always have people uh, looking after each other and and going the extra mile to to do what's needed. And that, as you say, it can only be it, it comes out of that's human kindness and emotion there rather than kind of anything uh, commercial or or you know business like okay so i think uh we have had a good chat uh and we have covered the main points of how the design team is composed and who drives the energy strategy so uh, it's been really helpful i think uh so if anybody has any other uh podcast topics that uh, you may want to suggest uh, you can contact uh, YEPG at ypg at cipsy.org or via our social media on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Uh, so thank you, James, for this conversation and enjoy your evening. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's, um, it's been fun. <laughs> Have a good night. Bye. Thank you. Take care.